Lord, I come to you this morning as one who is in a really desperate need of your empowerment. Please speak through me. Use me as your voice to bring conviction where it is needed, to bring encouragement where it is needed, for to bring about righteousness where it is needed, to bring about judgment where it is needed as well. I pray that it would not be myself who is alive right now, but it would be Jesus Christ in me. We all want to, and I want to in this message, put you on display because it is about you. Your name be hallowed, and your kingdom come. And this morning that we will learn that your will be done above all things. And so we just ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're looking at Matthew chapter 6, verse 10 this morning. I think I put this verse up there, yep. But we answer three questions. What is God's will? How is God's will done in heaven? How can we do God's will on earth? Even today. I want to begin with, I know I think Kay will appreciate this, being a hockey fan. In 1980, the U.S. Olympic hockey team shocked the world. You know what I'm talking about, right? When the U.S. Olympic hockey team defeated the Soviet Olympic hockey team. I can tell you where I was when that happened. I was sitting on my dad's lap in 1980 in Clarkson, Michigan, when that happened. I didn't know anything about hockey. I just enjoyed being in his lap and was watching this you know, hockey game, and I never played hockey and didn't really care about it, but there was something about, something magical about this event on TV that I was drawn to watch it. Who are hockey fans other than Kay in here that I know of? Anybody? A couple people? Okay. But you know the event, right? The Miracle on Ice? Okay. Well, that Soviet hockey team had won the gold medal. In the Olympic Games in 1964, in 1968, in 1972, and in 1976, they were considered to be one of the greatest hockey teams ever. Did you know that? Yep, one of the greatest hockey teams ever. But before that historic upset had happened, the coach of the U.S. Olympic hockey team, Herb Brooks, he had seven months to build a hockey team comprised of players from various colleges. So during the first series of practices, Coach Brooks would ask a random player uh, the same series of questions. What's your name? Where are you from? And who do you play for? Pretty simple, right? What's your name? Where are you from? And who do you play for? And in reply, the player would say his name, his hometown, and where he was playing or had played college hockey. So you had players from the University of Minnesota, Boston University, University of Wisconsin, University of North Dakota, Hawaii University, and so on. The last thing was a joke. They don't have hockey in Hawaii, obviously, right? 
So to beat the Soviets, who had played together for years, think about this. Coach Brooks had to take 20 different men, because 20 men made this team, from different colleges, bringing, playing different types of philosophies of hockey, styles of play, and bring them together to form one team. Of course, this didn't happen overnight. Months into practicing, the team gave a poor effort during an exhibition game. Furious, Coach Brooks had them do what I call suicides. You know what suicides are. They would start at, at, at the goal line, or the one end of the hockey ring. They'd go about a quarter of the way down and back, halfway down and back, three quarters of the way down and back, and then all the way down and back. And they did this after a game for hours to the point of exhaustion and the risk of injury to the players. It was so intense that even the assistant coach and the team doctor were pleading pleading with Coach Brooks to stop the conditioning. This is a true story. Suddenly, one of the players yelled out his name in hometown. Mike Rizzioni, Winthrop, Massachusetts. Coach Brooks paused what seemed like a full moment, looked at him, and asked the same question he had asked the players for months. Who do you play for? Mike Ruzzoni yelled out, in between taking deep breaths of air, said, I play for, take another deep breath of air, the United States of America. Mike Rizzioni got it. It was not about the individual. It was about the team. You see, the name in the front of the jersey, United States of America, mattered more than an individual name on the back of the jersey. With that revelation, the intense conditioning ended. Coach Brooks got what he was looking for, the beginnings of a team, as they understood it wasn't about themselves, it was about the team. Legendary football coach, I can't believe I'm saying his name, from the University of Michigan, being a diehard Buckeye, Bo Schembechler. I suppose you've heard of him, he's a Hall of Fame coach. Anyways, he would preach this message over and over and over and over and over to his players, This was a message. No man is more important than the team. No coach is more important than the team. The team. The team. The team. Now, when I think of the 1980 U.S. Olympic hockey team, there were three C's that identified that team. About the six C's of share in your face, there were three C's. Coach Brooks created a team that had was based upon creativity. It was a unique style of play. The highest level of conditioning. Creativity, conditioning. But above all, what was most important was chemistry. So the team had to become united. And I realized the reason why they, were, they beat 
the United States Olympic hockey team beat one of the greatest hockey teams ever. It was because 20 individual wills were formed into one will. And I want you to stick your finger up and repeat after me. One will. One will. Say it again. One will. This is what we are praying. When we pray, your will be done on earth as in heaven. What is this? One will. Now, as we continue our sermon series on prayer, I want to, I hope to deepen our understanding of what our Lord meant when he said that we should pray that his will be done on earth as in heaven. So we're going to look at three questions this morning. What is God's will? I hoped not to answer this question, but the more I studied, the more I realized that we have to understand what it is, because this is a very vast topic. But what is God's will? Well, we have uh, two parts of God's will. Think of it this way. The first part is what we call God's sovereign will or his secret will. It's the will that causes causes whatever God decrees to come to pass. His sovereign will. For example, in Isaiah 14, 24 through 27, get your Bibles out, turn to Isaiah, open it up to the middle, make a right. Psalms, make a right, you'll get to Isaiah 14, 24 to 27. Isaiah 14, 24 through 27. This is what we talk about when we say God's sovereign will, or we call it secret will. And I'll explain that in a moment. The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, you see that? So shall it be. As I have purposed, so shall it stand. In other words, what I purposed, it's going to come about. In this case, that I will break the Syrian in my land, and on my mountains trample him underfoot, and his yoke shall depart from them, and his burden from their shoulders. So what was going to end? The reign of the Syrians. Verse 26. This is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations, meaning God's hand, from the Lord of hosts, for the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? Who can stop the purpose of the Lord, is what he's saying. His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? In other words, God has a, a sovereign will, and his will will be done, and there's nothing you can do to stop it. Can you stop the sun from rising tomorrow morning? Why is it rising? Because of the will of the Father. Could the death of Jesus Christ... Be stopped. No. It was all part of God's will. Now, there's another part of his will. It's tied into his sovereign will. Turn to Deuteronomy. Now, go way to the beginning of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Verse 29. Chapter 29, verse 29. 
The sovereign will of God is also called the secret will of God. This is very difficult to try and explain to you in a simple way because it's a very complex issue. We talk about the will of God. What is the will of God? Historically speaking, it's called the, the sovereign will or the secret will. Maybe you're familiar with this verse, Deuteronomy 29:29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. So we see two wills there. The secret will and what? The revealed will. That we may do all the words of this law. So the secret counsel of God, it is his secret. Think of it as a mystery. And what is the mystery of God? In Ephesians, it talks about the mystery of God being what? It was revealed at God's appropriate time. And what was it? That Gentile was also included in the blessing, not just Jew. That was secretly the, the will of God, and it was revealed at, in his timing. There are things that God has simply chosen to make known to us and things not to make known to us. Now, far from being the mark of spirituality, the quest for God's secret will is it's, it's an unwarranted task. It's a, an invasion of God's privacy. There are secrets that God keeps to himself. And this is partly why the Bible takes such a negative view and, and denounces like fortune telling or necromancy. Okay. So how do we pray thy will be done on earth as in heaven with his sovereign will? I mean, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen, right? Well, we do this by joyously or joyfully getting involved in the anticipation of the accomplishment of God's divine plan. In other words, it brings forth praise from us that we can say, God, I'm thankful that your son is going to return again. I praise you for that. So we may pray like this. Lord, I know someday you're going to come again. And that which I know by faith, I will know by sight. May it be, Lord. So that's the, the sovereign will of God and how I pray Thy will be done on earth as in heaven. The second part of God's will is what we call the revealed will or the will of desire. This will has to do with God's laws and commandments and his precepts that he issues to regulate our behavior of his creation. Now, here's the thing. Can you stop God's sovereign will? No, but God's revealed will, his laws and commands, they can be disobeyed, right? We see that every day in our lives, quite frankly, and in the, the world around us. There are things that God wills that just don't seem to happen. They're his desires, but men reject them. For example, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, you don't need to go there, just listen. God's will is for you to be holy, so stay away from all sexual sin. Does that happen in our world? No. How about this? Luke 13, 34-35. This is Jesus speaking. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her rings, and you would not. Did the Jews come to Jesus and believe in him? No. What was his desire? That they would do just that. And of course, 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, 
not wishing or desiring that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You all know somebody that has lived a life of denial of Jesus Christ, despite knowing what he offers. They choose to perish. They choose death. There are unbelievers in the world. That is not God's heart, his desire. Now, we find a blending of God's secret will, or his sovereign will, and his revealed will in the life of Joseph. Do you remember the story of Joseph in the Old Testament? Do you guys remember the story of Joseph in the Old Testament? You alive? Okay, good. He says this in Genesis 50, 20. You know this verse. He's speaking to his brothers who have betrayed him, have tried to kill him, left him for dead, sold him into slavery, and so on. When they're all reunited, he says this. As for you, you meant evil against me. But what? God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Here God's revealed will to Joseph's brothers, which they knew they should love Joseph. Don't sell him into slavery. Was that obeyed? No. What was God's secret will that nobody knew at that time? That he would take Joseph, humble him, and exalt him to what? The second highest position of authority in all of Egypt. And then God would bring him back in connection with his family to bring his family through a terrible famine and secure the promise he made to Abraham. I think it's only appropriate that we remember the words of Paul and God working out his will in our lives. You've heard this before, Romans 8, 28. We know those that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Those who are called according to his purpose. Now, it's a mystery, and I want to get this out here, and I want everyone to look at me. How we have an absolutely sovereign God and a sovereign will that cannot be stopped, and yet we have our own will and resist his will. I don't understand how that comes together. No, no one I read and studied for this sermon can answer that question. But here's what I do know. It is not the true mark of spirituality to try to understand and find out the secret will of God. It is a true mark of spirituality to seek the revealed will of God. It's the child of God, the, the truly spiritual, spiritually mature child of God who meditates on his law day and night. So you know the revealed will of God. So when I pray according to your will be done on earth as in heaven in regards to the revealed will of God, I may pray something like this. God, fulfill your purpose in the world. Take every struggle and trial in my life, every pain and anxiety in my life, every sorrow and sickness in my life, and somehow reverse those things that are the result of sin and fit them into your eternal plan. God, there are people in my life and around this world that don't know you. I pray that somehow the gospel will penetrate their hearts. That's how we pray 
your will be done on earth as in heaven. That's the will of God. Now, the next question is one I thought of, and find out others did as well, but I don't know, and you don't know, what's like for God's will to be done in its totality. I mean, what does it look like, right? So we do know where that happens. How is God's will done in heaven, right? So, the Heidelberg Catechism, question 124, asks this question. What does a third petition mean, which is, your will be done on earth as in heaven? Well, the answer is, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven means help us and all people to reject our own wills and to obey your will without any backtalk. So it's, it's what? One will. One will. One will. Says your will alone is good. Help us one and all to carry out the work we are called to as willingly and faithfully. Here's the key as the angels in heaven. So God's will is done in heaven by who? How who does God's will in heaven? I just said it. Angels. Okay. Well, how do they do that? This is where I think you find this interesting and convicting. Turning your Bibles to Psalm 103. Psalm 103, right in the middle of your Bible. Psalm 103, 20 and 21. Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength, who what? Perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you hosts, or his hosts, you who serve him, doing his will. Now, actually, John McCarthy actually did a study on this, because they had to comp, take a huge subject, angels, and, and dumb it down for me and for us um, in a, a three to five minute segment of how do the angels do the will of God. And this is what he found out. There are eight words that describe how the angels do God's will in heaven. And it just gives us some more insight in how we, you with me, how we are to do his will on earth. Now, the eight words are this. Number one, they do God's will without wavering. Think about that. Without wavering, meaning there's never a discussion. When God reveals his will to them, there's no back talk. Okay? They do his will completely. So it's without wavering completely. I mean, there are no other alternatives. They do his will sincerely, meaning that they are eager to do his will. They do his will fervently, meaning they are very aggressive in doing God's will. They do his will readily, meaning they don't hesitate. They do his will swiftly, meaning they do it quickly. And do you remember me saying this? That the way that the, the, the structure and the grammar of this prayer is, 
the aortist tense that's written in, it means that there's a sense of immediacy that, that his name be hallowed. That his kingdom come like yesterday. Thus his will be done on earth as in heaven quickly like yesterday. There's a, 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 an urgency to this. That's how we are to pray. And finally they come, they do his will constantly. They are always doing his will. And finally they do his will, listen to this now, willingly. I want to ask you a question. Do you know how many wills there are in heaven? There's one will, right? One will. That will be done on earth as in heaven. But, for a brief time, there were two wills in heaven. But that second will got kicked out. So the angels of God do God's will willingly because it's the only will there is. Folks, in your life, how many wills are there to be? This is where it gets hard. One will. One will. Now, all the sermons in this series so far have focused on God. If I were to kind of bottom line it or to summarize, you know, all of these sermons and in, in how we are to pray the Lord's Prayer, really the disciples' prayer, it's, it's God's will is the priority. My will is secondary. Only one will matters. Only one will matters. So I could summarize all of the sermons so far with one sentence. And you've heard me say this before. And you need to get this. The front of your jersey, it needs to say God's will. The back of your jersey, it's to say what? Your will. But the one will that matters is God's will. To get all this, it really comes down to this. It is you have to die. If you want to begin to pray as our Lord instructed you and I to pray, self is secondary. And I've been encouraged, for those of you that are faithful to come to the prayer meetings on Wednesday night, we talked about, what are we learning as we go through this prayer series? It's that I, I have to become second. His will, His program, His desires come first. My needs, my desires are secondary. God becomes first. Which means I spend a whole lot of time praising Him, worshiping Him, meditating upon Him, in silence before Him. And in your silence, you are worshiping and hallowing His name, by the way. And then, and only then, I'm able to pray for myself. Because from here on, after the sermon, we'll focus on ourselves, Our needs. So, how do I live out God's will... On earth. That's the question I want to look at. Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Okay? Romans chapter 12. And we're going to close with this. How do I live out God's will on earth?
Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, Paul is speaking, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. How do I live out God's will on earth? Well, the first thing I offer God is it's talking about presenting your bodies or offering your, your, yourself to God, is that you offer him, first of all, if you want to highlight this word, you can, the word brothers. He's talking to believers. They've already offered a redeemed spirit to God. He's redeemed their spirit. He's called them. They've surrendered to him for salvation. That's the first thing that we see here. It's a redeemed spirit. That's a one-time thing that I offer God. The other three parts I offer daily. That as a holy body, you can highlight that word bodies, a renewed mind, highlight the word mind, and a surrendered will. Highlight the word will. So by offering God once for all my spirit at salvation, I then daily offer him a holy body. The offering of my holy body daily is actually, according to this verse, what kind of worship? What does the text say? It's spiritual worship. Now, I also fill my mind with his word. As I do this, my life is transformed as my mind is renewed. His thoughts become my thoughts. And I begin to claim the mind of Christ. Did you know that? You have the mind of Christ. Did you know that? You can think his thoughts. Paul talked about we have the mind of Christ. So when I've offered him once for all my, my spirit, who has been redeemed by God, I offer him daily my holy body. I fill my mind with his word and I offer my, my, a renewed mind. When I do those three things, then, and only then, am I able to discern God's will. And when his will is revealed, what do I do? I then surrender my will to his will. And when I do this, guess what I'm living out? Your will be done on earth as in heaven. And this is a daily practice. So in summary, what is God's will? Well, it is sovereign and it is re- revealed. How is God's will done in heaven? By angels, without wavering, completely, sincerely, fervently, readily, swiftly, constantly, willingly. And how do I live out God's will on earth? By my one-time offering of my redeemed spirit at salvation and daily offering God my holy body, renewed mind, and surrendered will. That's how I live out God's will on earth. Now, I'm going to close with a story. A powerful story. And we'll close with a question as an application point. Philip Keller, an author, uh, lived in Pakistan as a boy. 
He was reading Jeremiah 18.2 and he came across a verse that said, Arise and go down to the potter's house and there I will cause thee to hear my words. That's what God said to Jeremiah. Well, Philip got a little curious about the potter and what lessons the potter had to teach. So he went down to the potter's house in the city in which he lived. And this is what he wrote. It's a true story. It says, In sincerity and earnestness, I asked the old master craftsman to show me every step in the creation of a masterpiece. On his shelves were gleaming goblets and lovely vases and exquisite bowls of breathtaking beauty. Then, crooking a bony finger toward me, he led me the way to a small, dark, closed shed at the back of his shop. When he opened its rickety door, a repulsive, overpowering stench of decaying matter engulfed me. For a moment, I stepped back from the edge of the gaping, dark pit in the floor of the shed. This is where the work begins, he said. Kneeling down beside the black, nauseating hole with his long, thin arm, he reached down into the darkness. His slim, skilled fingers felt around the, a lumpy clay, searching for a fragment of material exactly suited to his task. I add special kind of grass to the mud, he remarked, and as it rots and decays, its organic content increases the colloidal quality of the clay, and it sticks together better. Finally, his knowing hands brought up a lump of dark, smelly mud from the horrible pit where the clay had been trampled and mixed by his hard, bony feet. With tremendous impact, the first verse of Psalm 40 came to my heart. He brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay. As carefully as the potter had selected the clay, so God had selected me. Then the great slab of granite cut from the rough rock of the high Hindu Kush mountains behind his home began to whirl quietly. It was operated by a very crude tread-like device that was moved by his feet very much like an antique sewing machine. And as the stone gathered momentum, I was taken to memory in Jeremiah 18.3. Then I went down to the potter's house, and behold, he wrought a work on the wheel. What stood out most before my mind at this point was the fact that beside the potter's stool, on either side of him, stood two basins of water. Then he goes on to tell how all, that all the while that the wheel was turning with the clay, he kept dipping his hands in the water, they would mold the clay. And he would dip his hands again in the water and mold the clay. And he never could mold the clay without the water, because it would stick to his hands, it would ruin it. So his hands always had to be wet. And he said it was fascinating to see how swiftly but surely the clay responded to the pressure applied to those moistened hands. Silently, smoothing the form of a graceful goblet began to take shape between his hands. The water was the medium through which the master's craftsman will and wishes were transformed to the clay. His will was actually being done in earth, literally, through the clay and water. Immediately, he says, 
I thought of the water of the word, which is God's agency for doing his will on earth. When God touches my life, he said, he touches me with his word. It is the water of the word that expresses the will of the master and finds fulfillment in fashioning man into his choice. Suddenly, to his astonishment, he noticed the wheel stop. Julian, the man reached in and picked out a piece of stone, and then he began to spin it again, stopped it again, and reached again to pick out a larger piece of stone. You notice now that with the tenderness of his hand, he could feel every rough spot, every stone, every small grain of sand. The two he had taken out were too large. The goblet was marred. So he reached to it and crushed it in his hands. Keller said to him, oh, that's sad. What will happen to that? Oh, he said, I'll make it into a common finger bowl. It'll never be a goblet. It's too scarred. And I thought again of Jeremiah 18.4, says Keller. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. Seldom did any lesson come home to me with such tremendous clarity and force. Why was this rare and beautiful masterpiece ruined in the master's hands? Because he ran into resistance. It was a thunderclap bursting in my mind. Why is my father's will, his intention to turn out truly beautiful people, brought to naught again and again? Because of our resistance. Because of our hardness. Despite his best efforts and endless patience with us, besides the water of the word applied to us, we end up nothing but a finger bowl. The sobering, searching, searing question I had to ask myself in the humble surroundings of that simple potter's shed was this. Am I going to be a piece of china, a piece of fine china, or a finger bowl? Is my life going to be a gorgeous goblet fit to hold the fine wine of God's very life from which others can drink and be refreshed? Or am I going to be a crude finger bowl in which passerbys will simply dabble their fingers briefly, then pass on and forget about it? It was one of the most solemn moments of all my life. And I prayed, Father, Thy will be done on earth, in clay, in me, as it is in heaven. God wants to do his will in and through you. He wants to make you into that beautiful goblet, but because you resist, you're a finger bowl. And the key question is, are you willing to let him do his will in you? The clay of earth, as it is done in heaven. 
That's the heart of the prayer, your will be done on earth as in heaven. It is this. One will. And so what I'm going to ask you to do this morning, this is our application point, is I want you to just pray about this question. What are some areas of your life that you could submit to his will? You know those areas. God knows those areas. Why refuse to submit them to him? And so what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to pray a, a brief prayer. It's a prayer of John Calvin. And then I'm going to invite you to come forward if you feel led. And you can kneel down here and you can then offer to God whatever it is he's putting on your heart. And then after that, I will pray and dismiss us. We will not close with a song. So bow your heads while I pray this beautiful prayer. It's a short three-sentence prayer by John Calvin. Then you can come forward if you feel led. And then shortly after that, I'll end our time. Pray with me. God, remove all the obstinacy of men, which rises in unceasing rebellion against you, and render them gentle and submissive, that they may not wish or desire anything, but what pleases you and meets your warm approval. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you'd like to come forward, you feel led to by the Spirit, don't resist. Now is your time. Offer that part of your life that you're holding back to Him.